What's wrong with you people? Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, a weekly podcast with Kyle Bierman, Matt Hensley, where we try to encourage you, equip you, and simply share what we're learning in church revitalization and church replanting. But if you're looking for a strong theological foundation for future ministry service, let us suggest Southwestern Seminary. Many of the speakers we have featured right here on the pod are professors at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and are top-notch sources for theological education. And the best way to experience that is to attend their Spring Preview Day on April 8th, where you will get to tour the campus, speak with faculty, attend panel discussions, hear from President Adam W. Greenway, and experience the unique campus community of Southwestern Seminary. So Spring Preview Day, April 8th, register today at swibbits.edu forward slash preview. What's up, Kyle? How are you? Man, it's cold. I don't care. It's, we have Andrew Bear with us today, <laughs> and uh, it is cold. It's even colder and snowing in yeah. Amarillo. Uh, not by morning. We are here by afternoon as we get to visit with uh, Andrew about his latest book, Shepherding Like Jesus. And uh, so we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But first of all, Andrew, thank you for coming on. And how are you doing? Doing great. Good to see both of you. Thanks for having me on. It uh, dropped up five inches of snow this morning here in Amarillo. So it's uh, for a kid from Houston, Texas. Uh, it's it's pretty chilly and very scary out there on the roads right now, but things are going really well. I will only uh, add and clarify this. This is my latest book. It's also my only book. So <laughs> as, soon as, it, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, I think it's only. <laughs> so thank you for but, assuming that I've written more, but no, this yes. is a, but, but I will add, it is longer than all of mine added together. Now, is that that's right? not hard to do. That's not it's hard to do Because we all. set the font at like 18. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so well, Andrew, we'll dive right in. Uh, shepherding like Jesus, uh, why? Uh, why? Why did you write the book? What do you hope people glean from the book? Yeah, thanks. Um, so the, the, the book is Shepherding Like Jesus, A Return to the wild idea that character matters in ministry. So the book is an application of the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes to pastoral life and work. And I'm just fleshing out um, what it looks like to be um, a pastor who reflects the character of Christ. And so the book is really written to pastors, it's for pastors, and it's about the importance of character in ministry. Um, this was a COVID sanity project for me. So um, back in 2020, my wife and I were, um, we were actually memorizing um, the Sermon on the Mount. It was something that we had done in college, um, and we decided to do it again at the beginning of 2020. It, it turned out to be providential uh, to have that to work on uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, early on in the year, as I was just reflecting on uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, I've always imagined in my mind that this was a sermon that was preached to thousands of people, you know, on a hillside. But actually, Matthew chapter five uh, tells us that when Jesus uh, saw the crowds, he actually withdraws and his disciples come to him and then he begins to teach them. 
And that just reflecting on that really was a game changer for me in terms of how I thought about the Sermon on the Mount. This was not sort of a generic sermon preached to the crowd. This was a sermon preached specifically to the 12 men who would lead the early church. What that means is if we have anything like a sermon to leaders in the Bible, it's actually the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, it is for all of us as followers of Jesus. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. Uh, There's no doubt, but it was to 12 early church leaders. And so it really began to, to shape and change the way I was thinking about the sermon. And what was really began to be noticeable to me was the kinds of things that Jesus was not talking about in that sermon. For instance, um, he doesn't teach uh, the 12 how to preach great sermons. I wish he had. I mean, wouldn't that have been awesome uh, to read Jesus on preaching? But he doesn't do that. Um, He doesn't teach them uh, how to organize the church. He doesn't teach them how to draw a large crowd. Um, None of those things. Instead, he teaches them things like how to forgive, um, how to pray. Um, And particularly in the Beatitudes, he begins to teach them eight characteristics that describe a person who is blessed in the kingdom. He starts to describe their character, uh, their virtue, their integrity, the kind of um, virtue formation (laughs) that should happen in their life as followers of Jesus. And so as I began to just read and think, meditate, memorize the Sermon on the Mount in this way, I really began to just think about how does this apply to the life of the pastor? You know, how do the Beatitudes give us a vision for pastoral life? Um, And as I begin to just reflect on what would it look like to be a pastor, for instance, who is marked by being poor in spirit or humility or a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a pastor who's marked as a person of mercy, for instance, as I began to reflect on that, it, it just struck me how vastly different that is than most of the ways that we think and talk about what it means to be a successful pastor. Right. We talk about pastoral ministry um, and, and what it means to be a pastor. We use terms like visioneer, um, influencer, right? Uh, charismatic, catalytic, um, right? I mean, I know you guys could probably toss in some descriptors here. We, talk, we, we focus on uh, leveraging our influence, expanding our brand, using our platform, all of these different types of things, none of which is in scripture, of course. And, and really a, quite a different picture than, than what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular. So the book is really just fleshing out sort of a beatitude in a life, if you will, as a pastor. That's great. You, you mentioned um, the eight characteristics that, that you focus on. Expand on those just a little bit and uh, what Jesus taught in the, in the Beatitudes and what they look like in the life of a pastor. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the Beatitudes are, are so, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. If you think about the Ten Commandments, there's a structure there. Um, typically, you talk about like the two tables of the law, right? The first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship to God, sort of a vertical relationship. And the, the, the second table or the last six commandments have to do with more horizontal uh, relationships with others. The, the Beatitudes are structured in the exact same way. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. The, the last four have to do our, with our relationship with, with people. And so there's kind of an inner logic to the Beatitudes. So I'll just list them off real quick for you. Um, Jesus uses the word blessed. He, he says that you are blessed or happy um, when you are poor in spirit. 
uh, when you mourn, when you are humble, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you are, are merciful, when you're pure in heart, when you're a peacemaker, and when you're persecuted. Okay, so I'll just kind of explain how those work together and then a little bit of what that looks like in the life of a pastor. So I think actually the first four describes our relationship with with God. It describes a posture that we have before God. And I think there's actually a connection between all four of these. In other words, these are not random sort of pithy proverbs that Jesus is throwing out there. There's actually there's actually a flow and a connection between these. So Jesus starts by saying that the blessed life in the kingdom starts with being poor in spirit. Well, to be poor in spirit doesn't, uh, you know, D.A. Carson says it doesn't mean uh, necessarily that you you aren't wealthy. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you necessarily go around kind of all mopey uh, or something like that, you know, sort of downtrodden in spirit. But that being poor in spirit is a recognition of your spiritual poverty. Um, the way I put it in the book is you're spiritually bankrupt, <laughs> that without Jesus, um, your account is dry. Uh, you don't have the resources. You don't have what it takes. And the first step to living a blessed life in the kingdom is just recognizing I don't have what it takes. Uh, I am spiritually bankrupt without Christ. When you come to that recognition, that leads you to a place of brokenness, what Jesus calls mourning. So you are deeply broken by your own sin, which then puts you in a place not of spiritual pride, but what? What's the third beatitude? Humility, right? Um, recognizing that God has what I need that I don't possess inherently. My, my spiritual bank account is, is empty. I'm broken over that fact. And now I, recognition, I have a recognition that God has those resources that I need which leads me then to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that he can produce for me, right? The, the hunger and thirst that he can fill my life with. So that's how the first four Beatitudes work. Now, once I begin to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ, which then God will fill me with, it begins to change my life. And it begins to change actually how I relate to the people around me. And so, for instance, I become a person of mercy. Uh, rather than judgmental or harsh or pharisaical, I now become a person who extends the mercy of Jesus to the people around me. I become somebody who's pure in heart, not just pure in my, my actions, but also pure in my, my motives. Uh, I become somebody who cares about reconciliation. I'm a peacemaker. And so I'm looking in the same way that I've been reconciled to God. I'm now looking to reconcile people to God and people to people. And then when I hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ, God begins to produce in me the kind of commitment to him that I'm willing to endure in faith, even when persecution comes. I'm willing to continue to follow Jesus faithfully all the way to the end. So that's how the, that's how the Beatitudes work. And by the way, the Beatitudes really function like a table of contents for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Every other part of the Sermon on the Mount relates to one of those eight Beatitudes in, in a particular way. It's kind of a chiastic structure that I sort of break down in the book. Um, so the whole Sermon on the Mount really is just fleshing out what it looks like for, for you to live those, those eight Beatitudes. And so the book is really just taking each one of those Beatitudes. Um, each Beatitude basically forms a, the topic of a chapter. And I'm just applying it to a pastor's life. Um, I'm applying, what does it look like to be a pastor who is broken over his own sin? Um, like a mourning 
we don't describe ourselves that way, right? We describe ourselves ourselves as confident, <laughs> um, knowing which way to go. I'm the leader. Let's charge the hill. Broken, mourning over my sin. Um, not so much. So I'm just fleshing out and kind of applying those beatitudes to the to the heart of a pastor, chapter by chapter. The uh, the next one that that we want to talk about is is some of the uh the the number of high profile cases where well-known celebrity pastors have disqualified themselves of course you talked about kind of the platform the brand you know the influencer side you know i think we've talked about on the pod before uh, paul tripp's book dangerous calling where only two out of uh, five of the endorsers are still in ministry today you know that have been disqualified and and so forth and so a lot of times we we see it we know it uh because we know of these guys you know they're celebrities for for a reason uh how how do we get here you know how did that happen that's a great question so uh, you know there there always is the tendency to elevate leaders to a place of idolatry um, you see it even in the New Testament. I was thinking about um, Acts chapter 14, for instance, where um, Paul is in one moment worshipped as a god. And he says, hey, don't worship me. I'm not a god. And in the next moment, people are stoning him and leaving him for, for dead. Um, and then later in Acts, uh, he's on the uh, island of Malta. Uh, you remember he gets bitten by the snake and the people think he's cursed and this is God's judgment. And then when he doesn't die... They, they think he's a God. <laughs> and so like you see this even in the New Testament um, where you have a leader, a preacher, whatever that, that people just kind of naturally elevate. And that has only increased, I feel like in, in our day and age, I think some, some of the more recent phenomena of social media and the internet and just the exposure that we have um, to people because we can watch you know, their sermons or listen to their podcast or whatever, like people, it's very easy to become really well known really quickly. Um, and so, yeah, we have this phenomenon, uh, of the celebrity pastor. And I think it's, it's harmful in a couple of different ways. It's harmful for the, the celebrity pastor to be elevated in that way. And for the people that that celebrity pastor leads. And so we've, we've seen the rise and fall, uh, podcasts. We've read, uh, you know, stories about various well-known celebrity pastors who have these massive uh, downfalls. Uh, being elevated to a place of worship is something you were never created. Like that's a weight you cannot bear because you weren't created for it. And so it's harmful for you to be elevated to that position, but it's also incredibly harmful to the people you lead because uh, you can't bear the weight of your people's hopes. Um, only Christ can do that. And so the celebrity pastor sort of phenomenon is, I think, dangerous and harmful uh, to the church, but it's harmful in a secondary way. It's harmful because um, it can be incredibly discouraging to other sort of normal pastors, which I would put myself in the normal pastor uh, category, um, but to look at the celebrity pastor down the road, right, and to think, is that what I'm supposed to be? Or maybe a sense of failure if I'm not that, you know, boy, he's drawing thousands of people and it doesn't seem like people want to, you know, come to our church like that. And, and so it can create a sense of failure uh, if you're not sort of successful in those ways. It can also create some false aspirations 
um, for, you know, think of your seminary student who's going to seminary and thinks that they're going to be the best thing since sliced bread and they're going to be the next big thing and have this great big podcast. And so they kind of desire or aspire um, for fame. Um, Zach Eswine, who, who wrote a book called The Imperfect Pastor, he says there's this desire in us to do large things famously and as fast as possible. And I think um, that certainly described me in, in college and seminary days. You know, I wanted to make an impact for Christ. And some of that was virtuous. Some of that was just raw ambition and ego. And the celebrity pastor culture, uh, I think, kind of reinforces some of those expectations and some of those aspirations. And, and it's just deeply harmful. It's harmful to our understanding of pastoral vocation. Um, and so often, um, it just makes us run after the wrong things, right? We're running after numbers, we're running after success, we're running after fame. When again, coming back to the Sermon on the Mount, what Christ calls us to run after is character. Uh, it's Christ's likeness, right? It's not about your charisma, um, your capacity as a leader, your competencies, even as a leader, the most important thing is your character. And if you're, if you're a gifted preacher and dynamic leader and charismatic person, but you don't have a character that reflects Christ or Christ's likeness, um, then you will have succeeded in all the things that don't matter. On the other hand, if maybe you're not the best preacher and maybe you're not the most dynamic visionary or something like that, but you reflect the character of Jesus in your flock, uh, then absent those other giftings, you are, you're being faithful and the Lord is going to bless that. So you mentioned the, the issue of the celebrity pastor. And I, I don't think any of us here would, um, would characterize ourselves as celebrities. Although only one of us has sold a t-shirt with his face on it, um, <laughs> as a fundraising <laughs> mechanism. Uh, but I, I mean, the, the three of us, um, I have a platform that, that is, that has come, um, I, I don't think either of us sought it out, but but we we all kind of have platforms that have that have developed, and so how do you how do you balance that that idea of Christian celebrity with maybe a platform that kind of develops naturally? That's a great question. I think it's one thing to have a platform that the Lord has entrusted to you, and and I think even if you uh, shepherd a, a flock where maybe you don't even have a social media account or something like that, but you have a flock. You have a platform. Um, there, there is a, a moment where you're preaching the word to people. You are calling them to live a certain way um, that you're calling them to follow. I mean, that is a platform. And so you have to steward that very carefully. Um, I mean, you think about um, how many different times Jesus taught about the idea of stewardship or, um, you know, the parable of the talents, for instance. Um, so the Lord entrusts influence um, to people. And some people have very sizable uh, influence just in terms of the numbers and other, other people don't. It's one thing to receive that from the Lord and be entrusted with it and seek to be faithful in it. It's an entirely different thing to aspire to that or to expect it. And I think that's the difference. Um, and I think that the celebrity pastor sort of culture cultivates the expectation or the aspiration that this is something we should seek or want rather than saying, I'm going to pursue Christ. I'm going to ask the spirit to form me into Christ likeness, which by the way, that's going to look something like the sermon on the Mount uh, or the Beatitudes. 
And then I'm just going to receive whatever ministry the Lord gives me and seek to be as faithful and as fruitful as possible in it. Awesome. Kind of changing gears a little bit. You're you're a member of the Southern Baptist Task Force on Sex Abuse. Uh, can can you speak to to us kind of about the problem of abuse in the church? What what has occurred, and and ultimately, you know, the key, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, what what's kind of our next steps, and and what we need to do, uh, knowing what we know, and uh, and where we move forward. That's a huge question. Um, and, and frankly, um, the the sex abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention was really heavy on my heart as I was writing this book. Um, it, it, un, it sort of pulled back the veil and showed me in a greater way than maybe anything else has that there's a character problem in the church. And so the book, I was trying to really, how do we, how do we get ahead of this? How do, we, um, how do we live as pastors in such a way that we don't have these kinds of scandals happening, whether it's rise and fall or, or you know, some celebrity downfall or a sex abuse scandal you know, where the pastor has abused his leadership? Um, and abused a person, how do we form pastors of virtue and integrity and character so that we don't get to those points? But the reality is we're there. Um, and the Houston Chronicle series of articles on abuse in the church uh, really did pull back the veil. And it showed us that there was a problem um, in our churches. And, and certainly the Southern Baptist Convention is not the only denomination. Um, I think every denomination has this problem. Um, anytime you have uh, a gatherings of people where you have uh, uh, brokenness and sin and, and those types of things, you're going to have uh, people get hurt. So it's not just us, but it's certainly us, right? And, and it's, a, it's a problem. And so um, it was something when I first read that series of articles, I mean, obviously it startled me. It, it surprised me. Um, it was concerning to me. I did not ever expect to be appointed to the abuse task force. Um, the president of the SBC was a man I had never met, uh, did not know personally, uh, but asked me to serve in that way. That was something that I really uh, walked into slowly, uh, really had to consider and, and pray about that because I knew that that was going to be a, a difficult and heavy responsibility. Um, but ultimately, I, I felt burdened um, to be a part of that. And so since being part of the abuse task force, um, there've been some things that I've learned. Um, number one, uh, there are a lot of abusers out there, most of whom will fly under the radar. Um, most abusers will pass a background check. Um, and, and they're just, they're there. Um, beyond that, uh, churches are not adequately equipped by and large to prevent and protect on the front end, and then to care for survivors and deal in the aftermath of, an, of a case of abuse on the back end. So churches and pastors are vastly unprepared and inadequate in dealing with this problem. And so here's, here's a couple of things that we've seen that has allowed this kind of thing to perpetuate, right? An abuser will come uh, to a church, um, will hurt someone. In many cases, that never becomes known. But in a case where it is known, right, let's say that a survivor comes forward and tells her pastor uh, that something that has happened. In, in many cases, that survivor is not believed. 
um, or is made to feel morally culpable as if he or she had a part in that abuse, um, you know, made to feel guilty, uh, oftentimes uh, interrogated in really harmful ways. And meanwhile, the benefit of the doubt is often given to the one who did the abusing. Beyond that, many churches have a flawed view of Matthew chapter 18 that has kept them from re reporting cases of abuse to the proper authorities. Uh, a lot of churches we've discovered basically have internal investigations. And a lot of times what that looks like is the pastor or someone will go and talk to the abuser and ask if this is true. In some cases, the abuser will deny it. And in the worst cases, that's kind of where it ends. Um, and so in other cases, the, the abuser might admit it and it might lose his or her job, but is sort of put away quietly so as not to bring uh, reproach on the reputation of the church in the community. Um, in some of the worst cases, some of the stories we've heard, they, they've even been given going away parties and things of that nature. And nobody really knows why they're leaving the church because it's not ever expressed, right? The best you might get is that they had a, a, a indiscretion, a lapse of judgment, something like that. They're sort of put away quietly, and then they go to the next church. And that, that next church doesn't know any of the, the history, doesn't know what happened. And so you will have serial abuse happening, church to church to church to church, sometimes in a dozen churches before it's ever really properly dealt with. So this is some of the problem, right? Um, we, we, we don't know how to investigate it because we try to do it internally um, instead of immediately calling the police and, and trusting Romans 13, right? That um, there is a time for Matthew 18, but there's also a time for Romans 13, where the, go the government is the avenger uh, for good, a minister of God to execute justice. And so, uh, unfortunately, we often avoid that entirely, try to deal with it internally, and that's where it really gets messy. It, it allows the abuse to perpetuate. And then, frankly, you know, the, the churches have just not done a great job of caring for survivors. Um, and, and again, I, I don't know that all of that is out of bad intent, um, I, I don't know that it's wrong-hearted, although in some cases it might be, but, but, but usually wrong-headed, but wrong nonetheless. And so this is a little bit, <laughs> I mean, it's a huge question. It's hard to answer succinctly, but this is a little bit of the problem that has happened in our, in our churches. And, uh, and now uh, our abuse task force has been appointed not to investigate individual churches, but rather to investigate how have things been handled by the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee when uh, cases of abuse have been reported. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of stories that are a matter of public record uh, where those things have not often been handled very well. And so we have, uh, we have engaged uh, Guidepost Solutions, which is uh, running an independent in investigation as a third party. Um, our task force is actually not investigating the executive committee. We're just kind of facilitating and overseeing, uh, making sure that, that the investigation can go forward in a smooth way. Guidepost is running that investigation. They're essentially uh, looking for 
uh, patterns and themes and threads over the last 20 years in terms of how the executive committee has handled those things. And then uh, we'll have a report uh, 30 days prior to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting in Anaheim, where we will present uh, their report unedited. Um, and that was really important for us. Uh, we, we do not want to try to PR this thing, uh, which by the way, that, that, uh, that has been sadly the approach of some churches is to try to protect, uh, you know, they, they deal with it as a public relations challenge um, rather than what it really is. And so we don't want to do that. We want to be uh, transparent and honest about what has happened. And then we want to make recommendations about uh, how we can change and we need to change. We need to do better going forward. And so our task force is uh, currently working on those things. Guidepost will have those recommendations as well. And so part of our report will include a series of recommendations. I think uh, we haven't written them yet, uh, but I think at all levels, I think we're going to be looking, you know, what can local churches do? What can state conventions do? What can our national entities do? Um, to begin to address and and handle these things in a in a way that's more Christ-like. I mean, it, it certainly sounds like I mean this book is timely. Um, I mean, for all the issues that we've discussed today, um, you know, pastoring well and and caring well for people in your church, and that would certainly include um, th those that have uh, experienced abuse as well. And then um, one thing that we haven't talked about, but we've, we've talked about ad nauseum in, in our culture is just COVID-19 and the effects of that. And we know that's had huge effects on churches and pastors, especially. And so I think, um, this, this book is going to be a great encouragement, um, to pastors as they continue to persevere, uh, through this season that, that continues ongoing and, and kind of just keeps getting longer and longer. So Greek alphabet letters. I mean, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, we're going to be into Hebrew alphabet before uh, too long at this I point. I was struggling to remember it, but now, you know, <laughs> they're just going to stack up the Greek letters to where it's going to sound like fraternities and sororities. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Andrew, where can, uh, where can folks find Shepherding Like Jesus? Yeah, you can go to shepherdinglikejesus.com um, or you can look on Amazon either way. And uh, there'll be some resources there. You can look inside the book, get a preview of it, that kind of thing. It's coming out March 1st. Uh, so just a little bit over a month, it'll be available. And guys, I just really hope, honestly, I hope it's an encouragement uh, to pastors that um, character in Christ is important, but it's something that Christ himself does in you. You know, it, it, Christ forgives you when you fail, but also empowers your obedience through the spirit. So I hope it's an encouragement. I hope it's a challenge. I hope it's a challenging book, but in all the right ways. I mean, I hope it calls us to something that is um, more meaningful, more substantive, uh, more difficult, actually. Um, we're talking about the character of Christ. Um, and so I hope that it is a challenging read, but I also hope that the book will, will provide some relief uh, for some pastors who are maybe struggling under the weight of some unbiblical expectations for what it means to be a good pastor. Um, you know, you don't have to be cool. Uh, to be a good pastor. You don't have to be charming or charismatic. Um, <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. Um, you do have to reflect the character of Christ, which is which is much more difficult. Um, but I want us to be challenged by all of the things scripture calls us to and relieved from the unbiblical expectations that often are so crushing. And especially in COVID-19, uh, all the pressures to be something or to do things a certain way, uh, they can really be crushing. And I want to, to, to provide a sense of relief uh, to pastors that you don't have to uh, be crushed under the weight of those expectations. No, Jesus calls you actually to something much higher, nothing less than his character, which is something he gives you and shapes in you and forgives you when you, when you fail to meet those expectations. 
Thank you, Dr. Abair. We appreciate it. I uh, it, it's good to at least finally outnumber this Ranger fan on the uh, uh, the podcast. Uh, and uh, so, so one one final question, and then Kyle, you send us out. When will the baseball season start? Not soon enough. <laughs> you think- I, I have faith that they will start on time. They, I, I, I think they'll get it. Yeah. I, I, I'm a little more pessimistic than Kyle is, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe not spring training, but I think the season will start on time. I think I might have to watch some Korean baseball organization games this year, uh, <laughs> but, but at least the direction it seems to be going. They seem to be pretty far apart, so yeah. we'll see. Kyle, send us out. Thank you again, yeah. Dr. Bear. Yeah, thanks for joining us on this snowy day, and uh, here's hoping you do not encounter a lion in a pit. There you go. There's an Old Testament deep dive for you right there. And uh, thanks, you, thanks for listening today. And until next time, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel you declare. Thanks for joining us today at Not Another Baptist Podcast. We're also grateful for our sponsors, the Christian Standard Bible, who present the truth of God's word with accuracy and clarity for today's readers, equipping them for lifelong discipleship. It's a Bible you can teach from with confidence and a Bible you can share with your neighbor hearing God's word for the very first time. The CSB, accurate, readable, shareable. Visit csbible.com for more. What's wrong with you people?